there is such a, a, an understanding, that is the first mistake. That there is something in heavens besides God that is independently powerful, that is something that has an existence in its own right, is wrong. And sometime later when he does speak about angels, we'll speak more about what they are and why they are. But the first thing is, as vis-a-vis God's existence, they are non-existent. They have no independent existence. They are creations as much as we are. They, they, they did not make themselves. They do not exist forever. They came into being. They might be more spiritual than us. They might be of longer-lasting uh, nature than us. But still, they are beings that came in existence from point A, and that's it. So the first thing the Rambam is trying to eliminate is that any type of higher spiritual beings, as it may be, is not, does not have its right for own existence the way God does. One. Two. Those things that he says on earth, meaning since it was considered by many um, thinkers that the earth is of such crass and coarse material that it cannot be that God created it. One of the big riddles that philosophers presented, and especially the Greek philosophers who made God into an extraordinary intellectual being, could not find a common denominator of a physical world with a spiritual God. So the real world might be God and spirit and everything. Anything that's physical and creative cannot be from God. It must have its own existence, and, and God overwhelms it with his existence. So this, the, the, the second mistake was the earth, as physical and as crass as it is, and as ungodlike as it is, it still came from God's existence. He gave it his How? It is one of, of the things that's very difficult to understand. How, from a pure godliness, did something as physical as cultures come in? But it's there. That is the second point that he means an earth. Third, and in between. What is in between? In between, he means as follows. Definitely, the, the heavens are spiritual beings, but they've got no surprises. Angels do what angels do, and except for two or three or four places where the Talmud mentions angels sort of going on strike or, or, or messing up, we're not used to angels messing up. Angels do exactly as they're told. So the thing that strikes us about angels is that they are very mechanical, and it's clear to us that they don't have their own existence. They're just machinery for God to bring his will into the world. One. The other hand, the physical world is governed by real uh, laws that determine how things are. And that also makes sense to us that it's preset by somebody and, you know, and, and, and someone brought them into existence, created those laws that govern their being, and that's that. There is one point that fluctuation in the world, which is human being and free will. Human being is in the middle in the sense that it's like, it, it's like when you have something on a, on, a, on a fulcrum and the thing can go either way, any way, whichever way. In other words, human uh, free will is not only um, extraordinary gift, but more than that, it seems to be spontaneous 
and not predetermined. Um, one of the, uh, I mean, uh, people are familiar, one of the issues about artificial intelligence is um, whether or not you can have a machine that mimics a human being. One of the, the so-called um, thought experiments with a machine is the following. If you get one of these calls from a computer-generated advertising agency, how can you tell whether it's a computer or a person? Um, and assuming the voice chips are sophisticated. So the first thing is when they're trying to sell something, you assume one of them is a computer. Fine. But let's say you, you have a very sophisticated voice chip, and it, it, gives a, and it calls up and carries on a lovely conversation with you. Can you tell in any way that it's a machine versus a human being? Yeah. What? Yeah. How? If someone calls you up and it's you, and you know it's a person. You and you say, no, no, no. And, and, and you know it's a rabbi. What? And you, <laughs> yeah. And you say, um, I'm a, I admit I can't speak with you now. We just had, God forbid, a death in the family. Yeah. You could tell right away. You could even, if the software was sophisticated enough, you could have a recognition system with common things. I can't talk right now. We would say. We will call back later. Right. Okay, fine. You gotta do it, but it can't take into account every possibility. Okay, so let's go one step. Fine, fine, but let, let's let's maybe just conceptualize a drop more. A, a, a computer software is always a program. The word spontaneous cannot apply to computer software unless there's a glitch. But if it's not, if there's no glitch, it's going to follow a pattern no matter what. And one of, one of the actual most difficult things they, they had with computers was generating um, random numbers with a computer is one of the most difficult tasks because you can't make a program to generate a, a random number. What, what you do is, by definition, it's not going to be random. What they do is um, it, they take some phenomena. For instance, they'll take a certain amount of, to measure white noise level in the background and you know, count that and divide it or, or, or square it or something, they'll always have to pick some phenomena that's existing and work with that. That's the, that's the reality of, of a number. Whereas a human being, we feel it's spontaneous. And there are people that have made the argument that we're also programmed and we're predetermined. And in that case, I've got no argument. But our definite sensation is that a human being is coming from himself. It's, I, I'm not a, a machine is doing what's been programmed to do. A, a person is doing something that's almost spontaneous from himself. So the real, the third and most difficult alternative to God, it, it would be a human being in being self-created. God might physically put him in, but my personality, that I can originate ideas, and I'm not bound by anything that's pushed me before, lets a real, allows a person a real possibility of thinking that he is existent, independent of God. So the, car the first thing is we have to understand God as the primary being, and and anything that is found in heavens and earth, which we explained means angels, spiritual beings, and physical material, and that which is between them, which we explain to be man, I think, have existence only by, the, by virtue of God's existence. Um, there is a phrase in the Midrash that lends itself to the explanation I gave to you. 
Um, we, we explained when we started this, the, the, the book that this is most of the Rambam's works can be very clearly traced to Gemara. Not only can they, but they have to be because they are, are, they are the summation of the different points of the Gemara put together. This particular Sefer is difficult because he's dealing with Agada material. He, he, he takes material in the Gemara and then recasts it in words that he's expressing himself. It's a lot more difficult to find the source for these points. And some of them are just his understanding. One of the sources that is listed by later commentaries, obviously, as a possible source for this is a Midrash in Dvarim. And it reads the following. Ein od milvada. There's a passage in Dvarim. There is no one but God. So the Midrash says, Afilu b'chalalo shal olam. Even in the... Um, even in the hollow of the world. Chalalo shal olam is, is a metaphor meaning in the, in the bubble, in the empty bubble of the world. Which, not clear yet what that means. Actually, the word halal in, in modern Ivrit means space or vacuum, hollow. It's, 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 uh, it's the same meaning, basically. It means the entire hollow. What are they referring to? There is no one but him. You know, the Pesach says, Vashamayim imal tochas, both in heavens above and the earth down. down. Ein od mulvado, there is no one but him, even the hollow of the world. Very, very hard to understand what that means. What does it mean, the hollow of the world? There's a Gemara uses a similar expression. A very strange Gemara. The Gemara says, were all the pens, um, were all the trees pens and all the lakes ink, and all the seas inks, we could not write out everything in halalo shall rushes. Halalo meaning empty, hollow. Roshus means government, human government. Reishin Vavtov, like Rishut in modern Ivrit, meaning uh, the Palestinian Authority is called Rishut HaPalestinai. The, the Rishut is not Rishut, but <laughs> Rishut. That, that's probably maybe more appropriate for that, but Rishut meaning the, the authority, the, the, the scope, authority. Rishut HaYachid means private, private uh, um, domain. Reshut Arabim is public domain. The word Reshut means, so it says, even if you could, even if you had all the pens, you could not write out everything in the Halal of Reshut. So Rashi says it's referring to the government, which is Rome, you know, in, in, which was the most encompassing government. And Rashi says there are so much going on at one time, wars and taxes and economy and so on, it would be impossible for a human being to possibly write it all out. It's a very strange Gemara. Because, uh, you know, it's, it's, yes, Rome was a strong empire, a mighty empire, but we're not given to flowery veneration of Roman Empire. Like, you know, wow, if you'd have all the pens and all that and so on, it's, it's a strange, very, very strange Gemara. One of the explanations given, with sort of a touch of Kabbalah, I guess, on it is, the word hollow, halal, meaning emptiness, hollowness, refers to the domain where God does not interfere. In other words, the area of um, human free will is called hollow domain in the sense God chooses not to interfere except for very rare cases, and it's the entire encompassment of human ability, ability in the sense, um, ability to act. So halalo shal rashut would mean 
human activity is inherently limitless. It's inherently not given to setting down in stone and writing it down because free will is so undetermined. So uh, taking that concept of halal or and saying that the word halal over here, that the Midrash means the same thing uses the word halal, would, would, would lead us to the explanation I gave in the Rambam. That halal or means the hollow, the area where God does not predetermine or, or mechanize activity, but it's where there's freedom to do, there's emptiness, and that becomes human domain, and that's what the Ram is referring to. It's a guess, it's very tantalizing, that's where it's leading to, and I, I, I feel it is true, but it's not 100%. Yes. But he's saying, I feel. I feel, yeah. So, so even in the places where... Where one would think. Where one would think. Right that we have right. Still, still, still it can't exist without Hashem. Right, exactly. It, right, but, but that, that's like the third point of Chiddush. Okay, so we finished the first halacha. Let's go turn over the page and we have the second halacha. V'imyale al hadas. No, it's, it's, it's on the same page. We'll just go V'imyale al hadas. And if it were possible to imagine Shehu enay matsui that he is not he, that God does not exist. Um, nothing else could exist. Meaning, as opposed to anything that we're aware of, and that's, for instance, let's say a person makes a table and then passes away, the table remains. There's, there's no reason the fact that the person made the table, a person thinks of a tremendous invention, idea, and the person dies, the idea, if it was published, remains and so on. Everything that he did remains. A person is thinking of something. He has an idea, a thought, a, a, a fantasy, and he dies. There is no thought, there is no fantasy, there is no idea, because the idea was existed only as a bubble within the person's existence. So if God were not to exist, then it, nothing else could exist, because nothing else has the ability to remain in existence. And that's why we say every day in davening, we say, God is constantly giving existence to the world because the world has no intrinsic existence. I think last time we gave a, a sort of an, an illustration, a different area. If let's say I help somebody get a job, I have a firm, and I help somebody become the accountant. There are a thousand applicants, and this guy might not have been the most capable one, but I pushed him in, he's hired as the accountant, and he does a lot of work, and he gets paid. And five years later, if I leave, he still has a job. Possibly the guy might fire him. But he is an accountant in a firm. He's, even though I had to push him in, but his validity is self-contained. I am an accountant. I am doing the books of the place. And if you want to get rid of me, then you have to fire me. On the other hand, let's say I have a, a large company, and I have a favorite nephew who's really quite incompetent. I don't know why he's my favorite nephew, but for whatever reason, he is my favorite nephew, but he can't do anything. And I tell him to sit in the room and to count the, the uh, balaka, or to count the tiles, you know, or whatever it is, just to read through the daily newspaper every day, and he gets paid for it. That's, his job is only as long as I want it, because he doesn't really have a job. There is no, in that company, there is no job of counting the tiles or reading the papers. It's just my... In my desire for him. And the minute I either decide I don't want 
or the the the, the um, or, or the 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 um, or, or someone else. I I, I sell the company. The day I sell the company, you don't have to fire him. He he doesn't really have a job because there is no job like that in the company. It's one of the things. Going off a little bit on a tangent, just understanding the attitude towards God on on a personal level. Um, somebody once in yeshiva asked me. There was a boy in yeshiva. Um, very a boy from a very successful family, well-to-do, and everything. And they suffered a terrible tragedy. His first cousin, same age of him, age of 19, passed away, just didn't wake up one morning. Right. Terrible tragedy, a few years ago. And he came to me very distraught, and he said, like, like, why did God do it, or how could God do it? It wasn't a major faith crisis, but it's something that he was trying to grapple with. And I asked him, you're looking at it wrong. The question is, why did you wake up this morning? We take it for granted. Our innermost feeling is, we're living. We exist. We, we deserve to exist. And, and God has to kill us in order to, um, in, in order to, to, to get rid of us. That's not true. God has to wake us up in the morning in order that we continue to live. It, it, it's the other way around. We don't have our own, quote-unquote, right to exist or existence. We only exist because God chooses there's got to be a choice that we exist every minute, and not vice versa. I once saw a very, a very cute, um, uh, like sort of also, I guess, an illustration of sorts. This was an argument between two Hasidic boys, one of whom had gone off to Chabad to study. Usually, the hero, whoever's telling the story, is it puts himself as the hero, but but it does fit. <laughs> and and uh, I just I read it, and and, and they. In, in Chabad, they did spend, they do spend a lot more time learning about different things, of, you know, this type of things, than other Hasidim do. So, I mean, that's the setup of the story. So, he, he came back after one, asked him, what did you learn? Give me an example of something you learned. So, he told him, let's assume that God wanted to utterly, utterly destroy the world. How would he do it? He said he would drown the world, like the Mabul. He said, well, a flood leaves over plenty of, of, of wreckage. You, you, don't, you, 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 know, you get a lot of muck left over after the flood recedes. That's not, that's not utter destruction. Okay, so he would burn it. So he said, well, you get the ashes, you know, the gases, there's something left over. So he said, okay, wise guy, how would he do it? So he said, he simply would not want it. In other words, <laughs> the attitude that you have to destroy something, it's like, how, how do you stop dreaming? What do you do to a dream to stop it? You just don't dream. It, it, you don't need to go and to do something to it. If our existence is a, a, an existence within God's existence, then our existence is our continuous existence dependent on something. One more illustration, because I think these points sound very abstract when they're on paper here, but they come in, like in a lot of situations, we just don't realize it. This, I, was, I used to be for many years at Asia Torah. I used to teach in Jerusalem. And you do get to meet a lot of interesting people. It's one of the benefits. You know, a lot of good stories because you always meet very, very nice people and very interesting people. But one day I was sitting with a boy who had been studying in JTS, which is a conservative seminary. A very fine boy, very intelligent, very nice. Re really liked him. And we were talking. He, got, he had learned a little bit Gemara and was fascinated by how the rabbis could determine certain halachic points and so on. And he said, in, in a very positive way, not, not in any sense negative, it shows you the fact that, that the, the court here decides what halacha is 
and that really becomes God's word, so to speak, how much, how much God respects human intelligence. And, and he meant it very positive. What was anything? I told him, let me tell you where you're making a mistake. Let's say I was having a, uh, let's say I was having a dialogue with Einstein. So Einstein is so much more smart than I am, and the chances that I can enlighten him at any one point is negligible. Fine. But it's not impossible. I, I, I mean, there, there would not be anything impossible by saying, you know, I spoke to Einstein, and I told him something he never thought of before. Or I asked a question about something, and, you know, if, if, I, if, if, I say, if, I, if I do it too many times, the laws of probability would stack up against me. But if I said I once had this conversation, I asked him, he couldn't answer me, or I, I showed him something, he said it's brilliant, it would, it, it would not be impossible in any way. And actually in science, it always happens. You know, no matter how brilliant somebody is, there'll always be somebody that'll point out something which, um, you know, somebody who's much less smart, that's not a problem. Let's say I had a puppet show. And, you know, I was running puppets and I was a ventriloquist and they were talking. Would it make sense to come and say, you know, today he really floored me with a line, the puppet. I, I mean, that would be ludicrous. I, you know, it, it's only me, you know, the puppet is me talking through it. So there's a difference between huge versus tiny, which let's say it's the same thing if I was fighting somebody extremely strong. I could still land the punch. I could still hurt him. I, I, you know, chances, probability is that I would end up being creamed, but it's not an impossibility. The, 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 um, the, I, I told him, your mistake is, your view of God is as being a super person and a human being as being a tiny person. But the idea that existence versus borrowed existence, real existence versus existing by, means automatically that it can't be better. A computer program can be faster than the one that made it, but it can't be smarter. The computer program cannot be smarter. One, it can be incrementally smarter. It can do a thousand equations, but, but the basic idea, it can't have a basic idea that the program it didn't have. It's only just, just, just um, um, piling up ideas, but not... It's the same thing in this, the corollary of this point, that if, if we could imagine God would not exist, nothing else would exist, is the point that we've made now. That anything in the world cannot, not only can't supersede God, but doesn't have any place within, not our intelligence, not our might, nothing of ours stands up to God. It's not, it doesn't equal God's or, 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 or is overshadowed. It just, when put face to face to God, it's like the idea to the person, it's like the puppet to the, to the puppeteer, and so on. V'im, Gimel, and three, it's actually one Allah, I guess. V'im yalal adas, and were we to imagine that nothing else but God would exist. Who levado He himself would exist. And he would not cease to exist if they would exist. And let me explain this also. This is based probably on a midrash. Again, I mean, many later commentators have have annotated as being the source. And it says the following. It's in last week's Sedra. It says, Yaakov reached the place. So the, the Midrash says, God is the place of the world. 
and the world is not the place of God. The similar, a similar expression is used in the Midrash, that Akkadosh Baruch is the house of the world, or the, or the residence, or the, the domicile of the world, what does it mean that God is the place of the world, and the world is not the place of God? Well, what, what do we mean by that? So, so let's try to understand it. Um, let's take a a um, let's take a let's take a world that we have a world with physical manifestations and laws that govern it. For instance, all items that have mass show examples of the laws of gravity of the law of gravity. So, in a certain sense. The law of gravity is an overriding factor, and the details are examples of it. But on the other hand, let a, a world that would not have anything with masks, the law of gravity would not exist. The law is, in a sense, the common phenomena of all things that exhibit its property. So, if if, if when you have details. And 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 uh, examples that manifest a certain law. So the law is the common denominator of the interaction of all objects with mass. If you don't have objects with mass, the law of gravity would not exist. The law is simply a description that fits the, the sort of the the, the, the central um, phenomena, the central axis of the phenomena of all things that fall or attract each other, and so on. Um, Let's, and so on, most of, if you would not have the law of electricity, of electromagnetism, would not exist in a world where you don't have positive and negative particles that interact in a certain way. Even things that override other things, um, let's take another example, laws, the laws in a more loose word, of human behavior, of human psychology, would not exist in a, in a, in a zoo. Um, it, it, the human psychology is only when you have human beings that manifest that behavior. I, I'm sure some of you would think it's a philosophical point, you know, when you don't have the details of the, the rule exists or not, but for better or for worse, it's a fair statement to say that when you don't have um, the details, then, then the, the, overriding, um, the overriding rule becomes obsolete or non-existent or academic at worst. But, but that's it. The the um, the way in which one of the mistakes of understanding God is, it's the sum total of human hope, human expectation, um, human knowledge. Somewhere along the line, it, it 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 is God is a product of human reaching up to something. Was there nothing in the world? then God becomes a meaningless entity. God is determined by the ruler of all, the king of the... When I say the king of the world, when, when there is no more world, then you lose your job. You, you, you become unemployed. When, when the last soldier in the country dies, then the king becomes no king. So we refer to God as king of the world, then we say, um, okay, when there's no world, there's no king. So God is dependent on us. And if I call God the creator... So if he never created anything, then, then, he ain't, then he doesn't exist. 
if I, in any way that I define God in relationship to us, I'm automatically providing a way for him to be obsolete. Creator means he created. Get rid of the creations, make believe there never was creations, had enough in creations. So one might say God needed to create the world for himself to exist, or just one second, or God is king because there are people to rule over, and if there's no one around, then he can't rule. So the Rambam is saying no. And that's what the Midrash is saying. He is the place for, within the which the world exists, but the world is not the backdrop for his existence. Yes, what did you want? No, I was just going to ask you, can't he uh, create and then have a requirement that he continuously create or the creations go away? A requirement in what sense? That he has to continuously do something. Like he, he makes a, a, you know, a tree or a piece of grass and every second has to be continuously Correct. creating that Correct. piece of grass. Correct. If he stops something, it's just the fact that he made it. Correct. Now the question, what do you mean? Are you referring back to which point? I just, just to the last point where you were, you were saying the fact is if, if he created something, yeah. then by definition, no, it's not by definition, but you said that that could, could mean that um, you don't need God anymore. That would be true creator, in our, right, had we, had, if creating was something akin to our activities of building or doing, that would be true. Creating distinguishes itself that it's from our act of doing or making because you can't walk away from it and, and it remain in existence. That, so yes. I, I, it's also from nothing. Yeah, but, but it's, it's also from nothing. It's, but that's always. Just like if I'm thinking of, of something, I'm, I'm fantasizing something. So it's only, since it, it doesn't have its own uh, reality, it's dependent on, my, on me all the time. Yes. Yeah, I wonder, it sounds like uh, even though the Rambam isn't writing with like a sort of, of Kabbalah yeah. in his writing, but it sounds very much as though he's alluding to the same distinction that the Kabbalim make in Ein Sof and the Yudke Babke and, um. and uh, also Elohim. They make the distinction between God existing right god existing and god bringing himself into this as it were kaviyaho bringing a relationship with this creation that comes through this the yud cable okay uh, let you know me I mean? let me let me refer back to the point you're making i mean she's referring to the fact that the rambam does not have the service of kabbal did not have to have our knowledge and yet the ideas are set up similar um Let's, you're a doctor, and let's say you are describing to a very lay audience and the human body. So you wouldn't use any fancy terminology, and you would, you know, you would, let's say you're talking about the stomach, you would explain about how it goes down a pipe, and it stops, and then it goes down, and then it gets ground up, and you, you would have a whole discourse of that. Somebody who's a little bright could probably extract an outline of it and, and so on. Then... If you go to a medical textbook, you would get that information in words, and you know you have very clear terminology, and somebody would say, my gosh, it's the same thing. It is. The difference, you know, is the basic tenets of belief are the same. And that distinction between God, for his own self, as you want to say, self, all those terms, and God, the way he applies those things, those ideas are very basic, and they must go 
however system you're going to use is going to have to come out because that's very basic to, 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 to the the uh, um, the Makubalim, What they did was they had the advantage of, of a very technical masoris where they could use very precise terminology. And the advantage of using precise terminology is that you can you can build much quicker. It's just like if if you'd have to write a, a textbook on medicine using kitchen terminology, the big hole and and, and that funny bone and this and that, <laughs> you couldn't you couldn't go too far with it because it, it, when you have very crisp terminology, so first thing is you confuse the layman. That's one advantage, and and the second advantage is that you can really you know you, you can build a lot out further. The, the Kabbalah was able to ramify because it had a very strong source. But the basic ideas, certainly at this level, have to be very much the same. Yes, correct. So he says, okay, and so let's, let me just go back to finish up this idea about place, because it's a very important idea. The word place means um, what you call in logic a universal set. It's within what framework? When I say there are three different types so the first question is, what are the parameters that we're talking about? What, when I say there's blood types A, B, and A, B, and O, blood types in what? What, what, are, what, is, what is the topic we're talking about? So we're talking about a certain set of antibodies, a certain set of, 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 of reactions. Fine. So now I've defined background, I've defined the, 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 the general set, and then I say within that set we have four divisions. But every, the word place, as used in a more philosophical sense and when dealing with these topics, is just like the place is wherein you build. Everything has to exist within the place. So when I say that this person is an, a, an excellent accountant, within what? Within America, the world, taxes, uh, give me the parameters that describe the, 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 the entire set that you're talking about, and then we can put him in, in a niche. So, so when we say that the God is the place of the world, means the world exists only in the context of God. God wanted a certain world, fine. Within that context of God, there is the subdivision of human beings and so on. On the other hand, the world is not the context for God. It's not all of what the, the, the ultimate creator, the great designer. God is a great designer, and he is the great designer of the world, but he is not the great designer. He, because that limits him to the world. If you take the building away, there's no great designer. He is the creator, but he's not the creator. That's not him. It's within the world, his role is the creator. But I don't limit God and say, well, what's God? So I say, well, look around the whole world. He's the creator of the world. No, one of his activities was creating the world. And, and that's a very big distinction. It means we take God out of our um, this context and we give him his own context. So let's just uh, finish up this halakha so we get it down. And was the entire, if it were possible to imagine, that nothing else but God existed. Who levado He will exist. And he would not become um, in any way cancelled out because of their cancelled existence. 
שכל הנמצאים צריכים לו, because everything that exists needs him, והוא ברוך הוא, והקדוש ברוך הוא, אין עוד צורך להם, does not need them, ולא לאחד מהם, nor even one of them. In other words, it does not need any elements of this world to, to give him existence. There's one more point that the Rambam is sort of trying to um, avoid, I, I, I would say, not avoid, but he, that he's trying to cancel out a certain idea. One of the questions that were wrestled with was, why did God create the world? And that question has a lot of answers, uh, peddled, you know, wide and far. He created the world for his glory, for, for, for to benefit humanity, to do good, and so on and so forth. They are all true, but they're all true in, in, with a subtle distinction of what does it mean why God created the world. If the question is, if I ask why somebody did something, and I explain it in terms of the fact that this person was plotting something, and A leads to B, so that is a correct expression of why God created the world. Towards what purpose was the world created? To bring out his glory, to, do, to, benefit, to, 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 to benefit humanity, and so on and so forth. All those reasons answer that question, third answer the question. But there's another way of asking why. A psychologist puts somebody on a couch and says, what's driving this person to be a nuisance? Or what's driving this person to do this or that? What I'm really looking for is, what lack does that person have in his personality that he needs something else? Why is this person so desperate for money? Because he grew up poor and he needs the calm security. Or he, he, he suffered from a lack of recognition, this gives him recognition. Or whatever it is that a psychologist comes up with. So what I'm really, so anytime I say why does somebody need something, what I'm explaining is that this person has a hole in his personality and something's got to fill it up. This person needs love, so he showers gifts on everybody and hopes to get to be reciprocated. Or this person needs honors and that's why he goes around bragging, or whatever it is. That question about God obviously does not, we cannot answer that question in that context because it just doesn't apply. So if we to ask why did God create a world, any answer that sort of even has an inkling of pointing towards some, some lack that God needed a world to fulfill a need is basically um, kfira, because basically you're, you're creating, God is imperfect and he needs the world to, to perfect it. So, so the, the, that idea can't be. That's another point, I think, that the Rambam is trying to say, that God does not need any part of the world, meaning even though he created it, and there are reasons for the creation, but none of those reasons can point to a lack. In other words, God needs people so that he, he must do kindness, so he needs people to... to, to to be the bearers of his kindness. No, because th then what you're basically doing is um, translating it into a, a, uh, a lack in God. So therefore, was any, were anything in the world to be lacking, not only would, would God remain in existence, but he would not be lacking anything. Nothing in God would become bottle 
would become um, missing would be missing if if the whole if the entire world were to disappear, then it would not affect God because we're a product of God and not the other way around. Yes. Well, I think comes to my mind that's like the dream the dream analogy seems perfect. Like George Bush has a dream for him. Right. And I exist in George's dream, and he wakes up. His life is no difference with or without me. Right, right. Same thing. Same thing. In other words, it can't be that that um, it's something which is if, if B is, is is a creation of A, then it means A's existence was not lacking for anything. You can't. Uh, unfortunately, um, people who are ill, people who are mentally ill. One of the things is they need their dreams so badly that they sort of it, it becomes reality to them, and vice versa. Fine. That that that's a. Uh, that's a sickness, the aberration. Yes. How, how did you deal with the concept that? Okay, so ba- basically, as far as the realm goes, we're holding here. In other words, this is at the end of Gimel. Yes. What did you want, John? That Hashem wants us to do good, or wants us to do mitzvahs, or wants us to learn Torah. Does that contradict this? I mean, if none of this really matters, make the difference to him. Okay, so so let let me try to so, so let's give an, uh, sort of a, a relationship that we could see the same thing. Um, if a person wants his wife to cook dinner, that's because he wants dinner. So you know, there's a need. He, he comes home hungry, and his wife is going to cook dinner, and, and it's it's a real need situation. Let's take a look with a kid, where it's a lot more subtle. A kid comes home, and he does well in school. to say, you know, I, I brought home the test, I got a hundred, it, it's, if the kid paints the house, so the father needed the house painted, and the, the, if the kid paints it, wonderful, you know, I, I painted the house, my father needed it, and I did it fit. But if the child succeeds on his own, then it, it, it's more true to say it in the following way. The child, the father wants the child to do well, to be matzliach, to do well, and so on and so forth. He's got the, the context of their relationship as parent and child is that, that the relationship intensifies when things go well. So it's not that there's a particular need for this uh, as such, but it, 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 there's a context of a father-child relationship, which is the child doing a nachas ruach and so on. God set up a relationship. And within that context of that relationship, mitzvahs enhance it tremendously, are various detract from it. So, yes, w- when we do mitzvahs, they count because they can I mean, if a kid comes home, he'll come home with a 40 on an algebra test, and I'll say, Dad, you can kill us about algebra either. So, what's it to you? You don't, know, you don't need algebra now. Like, what's it to you if I knew the answer, didn't know the answer? Well, you're right. It's nothing to me if you knew how to do the, 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 the problem, but you're succeeding or not succeeding is, is, is the point of relationship. So God created a context of relationship of good and bad, right and wrong, which translate to closeness or disparity. And within the context, it's important. So the question is about the context, not so much. Exactly, exactly. We can only deal, one of the things, there's, there's a Lushan in the Mishnah. There is, the Mishnah says in Chagiga something. Chagiga is the only place where the Gemara really speaks on Kabbalah-type topics. Very veiled, but there is. And the Mishnah says, you cannot ask about what was on top, on the bottom, yeah. in, in, behind, or in the front, 
basically what it means is there is a set framework that of of context that we allow to that we are able to think about research get involved. Anything past that, so like you said, in the context of the relationship, in that fullness of that context, everything is valid. All questions. Past that, it, the human mind stops. There is no, there is no validity. Yeah. Well, I, you brought up a third point. I, I think in Itzavim, yeah, it says that you know the the the, the secret things are right. Hanestoros l'Hashem elokeinu v'anigasanavanei. I don't even know if that's referring to it, it, anything that's past that the context of the relationship is past the context. But uh, but when the when the Torah says nistarim in that, it's, a, it's possibly it's, it's possibly possibly maybe possibly yes. I think so. I was going to say that um, when a child treats a parent with respect. Yeah, which is a relationship thing because it's, gaining an A on a test is not relationship. When a child uh, treats a parent with respect, in fact, if the if the adult is whole, yeah, and well, then she or he does not require the child's respect for your own sense of yourself. Unfortunately, what happened? Well, but there is a difference. See, no, no, I'm just saying yeah. that there's that that's a little bit farther. It seems like that's more of an example, maybe even than than the success on on a mark in school, because the child giving you respect. Yeah. Your concern is that the child develop respect, so that he can, so a of course he can be in in line with the, you know, the, what the Torah says to right. do. And B, so that he can develop his relationship with the Kaddish Baruch Because if he can't learn to respect you, it's much more difficult for him to respect, but, but have, he, a, have a relationship. Even the point you're making, even at a secular level, if someone else gives me respect, someone else tells me you're a great guy, so it boosts my ego. It basically, you know, it feeds my ego. That's, that's the nice part of it. It's like, yeah, he, he thinks that but I'm you great. you don't need it. Well, 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 a stranger, when a stranger shows me some respect or admiration, so it feeds, in, it, it feeds into my self-esteem. When my child says, Dad, it really that help us tremendous, it touches a very different nerve. It touches what I want is to be close to the child. Right. And if the child felt, so here you have that distinction where for an outsider, it feeds an external part of myself and, and a child that feeds the relationship. Right. I, I like it when my child tells me that I helped him because, not because I became greater in my eyes, but because uh, I, I like that we have this. Yes. So when Hashem says, if you're Bikari with me, I will be Bikari with you. Right. right. So there's always this concept of, I, I think this is really the, the dynamic tension between these two concepts of relationship yeah. with Hashem. Right. And non-relationship. Correct. Correct. That, that's the only... In, uh, that's really ultimately correct. the, correct. the correct. dynamic you, it, it, tension it's of like those two You concepts. can either engage or disengage. Like, like you, can, you can be neutral or you can be, or you can be engaged. Correct. That's the... But, the, but when, you, when we talk about God not being affected, right. that does not bring us to a place of relationship. When, if we say, if I say to my child, you know, I'm, I'm just unaffected by what you do or what you think or what so, you so, say, so this, this, this will correct. destroy relationships. Well, unaffected in so the sense it does not, if you got a 40 on the test, I didn't lose any money out of it, I didn't, I didn't lose anything out of it, but the relationship has become this. When we sin, we don't harm God as such, but God wants a relationship and we harm the relationship, so, so that's, the, that's what we've done harm. Okay, um, it's my time. Um, next two weeks from now is fine. Yeah, it'll be after Hanukkah. Two weeks from now, it'll be Tuesday.